This episode is a repost. The stand is taking a break for the Christmas holiday period, and we are posting some of our favourite episodes from our back catalogue. You can find more at the stand with AimonDunphy.com. Have a lovely Christmas and a happy new year. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Anybody who's suffered from pain, chronic pain in particular, will know how demented you can become, how severe pain on a daily basis over a period of time can make you so desperate and affect your life very dramatically. Therefore, of course, the the remedies, the painkillers, are a gift. But a new book has just been published published here, uh, written by an American Writer and investigative journalist, uh, Patrick Radden Keefe, it's a quite stunning book about a painkiller called OxyContin and the people who manufactured it, marketed it, and avoided the regulator for a very long time. And I'm joined now, the book is called Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. The Sackler Dynasty, they're a family, they are among the great philanthropic dynasties in the world, uh, particularly in the United States, but also in the United Kingdom. Uh, Patrick, this book is is stunning, uh, and the story of this family is truly remarkable. I just want to begin by asking you um, about the harassment you received yourself when word was out that you were writing this book. Oh sure. Well, listen. Thank you, and thanks for thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, I started. You know, originally I wrote an article about this family in 2017, and up to that point, the Sackler family was really widely known for being, as you say, great philanthropists, uh, giving hundreds of millions of dollars away uh, in the U.S., the U.K., really all over the world. And you know, there's there was a Sackler wing at the Louvre and. Uh, Sackler exhibit halls and galleries, uh, the you know, the British Museum, the Tate, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, and so forth. And what was less widely known was that the family had made billions and billions and dollars of dollars on the sale of this drug OxyContin, which was a painkiller that had um, helped a lot of people suffering from severe pain, but also turned out to be quite addictive for many people and to have precipitated the opioid crisis, this terrible public health crisis. In the U.S., and so they weren't crazy about this story I wrote in 2017, but that was just a magazine article. 
I started work in earnest on the book in early 2019 and it was announced that I was, I was doing it. And, um, and at that point I started getting legal threats, uh, from, from an attorney that the family engaged and those continued really on a, on a pretty steady basis, uh, over the next couple of years. Yes. Um, They were, um, beyond reproach and interestingly, their name was nowhere near OxyContin, uh, and the company that produced it was, to all intents and purposes, anonymous, called Purdue Pharma. And I just want to uh, to adorn what you said about their reputation. Um, one museum director likened the family to the Medici's, uh, who were a noble clan in 15th century Florence, whose patronage of the arts helped give rise to the Renaissance. So they were a big-time uh, operator. Now to the drug itself and to the problem in the United States. Um, 500,000 people are estimated to have died uh, as a result of taking too much of this drug and becoming addicted. The drug itself, OxyContin, how did they discover it? And how did it get past the FDA, which in our minds, certainly someone of my generation, is the gold standard for regulators in the world of medicine? Yeah, I mean, I should say first, first off, just just to be precise about it. So uh, around 500 people, 500,000 people have died in the opioid crisis. It's been an evolving crisis. So it hasn't been, those people have not all died from OxyContin. A great yes. many have died from OxyContin, but also other prescription drugs and then heroin and fentanyl and street drugs, which is very much what's, what's, what's going on today. You know, we've, we've always known for thousands of years that products derived from the opium poppy can relieve pain. They have this miraculous ability to relieve pain, but that, that kind of twinned with that, the flip side of that is that they can be quite addictive. And what happened with OxyContin was that in the 1990s, you had a, the state of affairs in the U.S. and many parts of the world was that doctors were quite reluctant to prescribe strong opioids, that is drugs derived from the opium poppy, uh, unless people were in really, really severe pain, cancer pain, yes. end of life type situations, because they were worried about addiction. And what the Sacklers and their company, Purdue Pharma, did was they took this very powerful drug, OxyContin. And launched it onto the market, and they said this shouldn't just be some nuclear solution, you know, that you graduate to when other remedies have failed. This should be the drug you start with, not just for severe pain, even for moderate pain. So they envisioned a market of tens of millions of people who might take this drug. And what they did was they they persuaded doctors that it was safe to prescribe it to these people with claims that the drug wasn't actually addictive, that these concerns about how addictive opioids were were all overblown. And so there was a big marketing push um, to, to persuade people of that and to persuade the FDA. Um, you know, you ask, how did they get through the FDA? I'll tell you a story. The, the main official at the FDA in charge yes. of, <laughs> of approving the drug was this fellow, Curtis Wright. Yep. And he, he gave them the approvals they wanted. The drug really sailed through the process in record time. And once OxyContin was approved and became a blockbuster, Curtis Wright thought he might like to leave the government. Yeah. And about a year later, he ends up with a job at Purdue Pharma. And this is in the 1990s, making some $400,000 a year. Yep. Uh, that, I noted that and laughed because 
the success of Purdue Pharma uh, can be attributed to another phenomenon, which is the degree to which general practitioners were susceptible to bribes, to going on junkets, to uh, being having been beholden to Purdue Pharma, they were much more likely to prescribe the drug and also to assure people that anything negative they heard wasn't really true. And that, that's a huge, they're a huge cog in the wheel, aren't they, general practitioners? Absolutely. And, and some of this, I should say, I mean, it comes down to the fact that, that um, uh, th- this is certainly true in the U.S. and, and I, I should think in Ireland as well, that the doctors often don't really know how to treat pain. It's a subject that has been kind of elusive and um, not taught in a, in a smart way in medical schools. And so you, you had a bit of a vacuum. And what happened was the pharma companies rushed in to educate physicians. And yes. so the, you had all these general practitioners who hadn't really learned how to treat pain. You know, they thought of pain as a symptom of other conditions, but didn't really know all that much about how to treat pain itself. And what they learned about the treatment of pain, they learned from the pharma companies. And what we know in retrospect is that the pharma companies came in with all these claims for the upsides of these drugs. They really downplayed the risks and the dangers. And then there's this other aspect of it, which is that they, they taught these general practitioners how to, um, how to get people on these drugs. But if you think about it, if you're the pharma company, you know what you're not going to teach them is how to get people off. Yes. So, so Purdue had this tagline for OxyContin. They said, it's the one to start with and the one to stay with. Yes. And in their minds, ideally, you know, people would keep taking these drugs year in, year out. Um, but you now have a state of affairs in the U.S. where there are lots and lots and lots of people who have issues with these drugs and, and their doctors don't quite know how to taper them off. Yes, and there's another um, fact in this, which is that... Uh, they started with a certain s- smaller dosage, and then they made stronger pills. Uh, I think at one point they had a pill that was 160 milligrams, having started with a pill that was maybe 40. So that 160 milligram pill was enough to kill someone, and they were able to do that as well, which is really sort of sinister. Yeah, they, they eventually took the, the 160 milligram pill off the market. Um, you, you may not be shocked to hear. Um, <laughs> I'd like to get it. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was powerful, powerful stuff. Um, but yeah, so the whole business model was based on the volume of the drug in these pills. So, you know, they had a 20 milligram pill, but, but the company made more if you, ha- if you were on a 40 milligram pill. And they yes. made more still if you were on an 80 milligram pill. And so the, for, for years, for decades, the, the business plan at the company was get doctors to up the dose. You want to get them upping the dose for the patient. And the, here's where it gets really sinister. The nature of opioids, it's part of the chemistry of these drugs, is that when you start taking them, your body develops a tolerance. Yes. So if you're using the drug to achieve some equilibrium and to eliminate the pain, and you start with 20 milligrams, you're not going to be able to stay on 20 yes. milligrams. You're going to have to amp up that dose in order to just keep the, the equilibrium that the 20 milligrams used to get you because your body is, and it's, this is no different from, from somebody who's, who's doing heroin, right? 
Um, and so from a, from a, a kind of callous business point of view, that's a recipe for success. I mean, that, that's the way in which this drug ended up generating $35 billion in revenue. Yes, and there's a, a sort of an interesting human interest story in the book about one of their own employees, a senior secretary. Martha West is the pseudonym you've given, um, but a senior a secretary to one of their senior executives who became addicted to it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this was, was part of what was fascinating for me, looking at this very wealthy family and trying to tell the story of three generations of, of the Sacklers. And I think there's always been a little bit of a sense um, for the family that, you know, to the extent that there's problems with the drug or things that have gone wrong, it's kind of, it's not in our backyard. You know, it's not happening in our, in our elite world yes. and in New York's in Manhattan and in London. Um, but what was interesting is once I started pushing into it, I found all these stories of people who were right around them uh, who did suffer in this way. And, and in the story you referred to, there was a legal secretary who worked on the same floor of the company headquarters as a number of the Sacklers. She had uh, back pain because of a car accident. The company suggested she get on OxyContin. She started taking it and, and became addicted. Uh, and they fired her. After 20 years, they said, get out. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, hey, it's Kip Bodner, CMO of HubSpot. Join me and my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO over at Zapier, on Marketing Against a Grain. We're not the typical regurgitated Twitter threads. These are takes from us, marketing leaders about what we're doing and what we're learning from our peers and what's working in the market and how you can apply them to your business. Everything you need to grow a modern business and have a strategy that is fit for growth in today's changing economy. Listen to our podcast, Marketing Against the Grain, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food. Food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Now, how long did this go on for? Um, and can you, there were three brothers who were, but there's a, an extended family and they have a close extended family, about 15 of them, uh, daughters, sisters, brothers, they're some operation, aren't they? I, I, including the, philanthrop the philanthropic uh, element of it, but also the idea that, uh, and I think the father of the family had told them, one thing I'd like you to do, leave the world a better place than you found it. That was the family motto, as it were. 
Yeah. It's quite extraordinary. It's a it's a great book, I should say. It really is a great, great is the right word because it's so, man, there are so many dimensions to this sinister story. Yeah, I mean, I, this was part of what was appealing to me about the, the subject matter was that once you get into it, there's a kind of an epic sweep. So the story starts in really in the Great Depression in Brooklyn and you have an immigrant family, um, this couple who had come over separately from Europe, they were Jews, uh, they married and had three kids, um, and it was three boys, Arthur, Mortimer, and Raymond, and they grow up against the backdrop of the Depression in immigrant Brooklyn. And so there's a kind of classic American story in which these boys want to grow up and make their mark, but they've got certain things uh, stacked against them. Um, their father loses everything in the Depression. They face really fierce anti-Semitism. Um, to a point where actually the two younger brothers couldn't go to medical school in the U.S. They had to go to Scotland. They actually they went to medical school in Glasgow yes. um, because there were Jewish quotas in U.S. medical schools. And there was always this sense, though, of kind of building the legend of the family. There's a moment in the Depression when Isaac Sackler, the original patriarch, when he loses everything, he brings his, um, he brings his sons to him and he says you know, I don't have anything to give you. I can't pay for your educations. You're going to be sort of on your own here. But the one thing I'm giving you is the most important thing that a parent can give their child. I'm giving you a good name. And he says, if you lose a fortune, you can always make another. Yeah. But if you lose your good name, you can never get it back. And what starts to happen, really not too long after that, it's in the 1950s when the brothers start making money as businessmen, they start giving money to museums and to universities. And every time they give the money, they say, this isn't charity. This is a transaction. We want our name, the Sackler yes. name, above the door. So there's a kind of, um, you know, there's a sort of almost um, tragic arc to this story because it, it really starts with a great deal of ambition. And I would even say idealism. And it ends in a lot of death. Yes, and I mean, among the drugs they successfully marketed, tranquilizers, uh, Librium and Valium, is, which is a, a yeah. name, it's almost, you know, uh, for all uh, of these uh, uh, tranquilizing drugs, um, Valium is the, probably the most commonly named of all of them. Certainly, OxyContin isn't a name that would be known here. But the... Um, their brilliance at marketing is something that struck me. Patrick, I'm a journalist myself. I regard marketeers as the enemy of our time. Yeah. Uh, but they certainly knew how to market the products, uh, OxyContin and other products. They were masters of that. Yeah. I mean, this was the, the big through line for me, really – and it, and it extends through three generations of this family, was that um, it starts with Arthur Sackler, the oldest of these brothers, and in the in, in, uh, he trains as a doctor, and originally he's a, he's a research uh, psychiatrist. But he gets into medical advertising, the advertising of drugs in the 1940s and 50s, and there's this kind of madman era yes. in which... After the Second World War, there's all these new drugs being produced by these big drug companies, and they're kind of emboldened, and they're trying to reach consumers. And Arthur Sackler was the guy who really invented the field. He, he figured out how you advertise drugs. And one of his big revelations was that 
it's not so much that you advertise to the consumer the way you would with cigarettes or automobiles. The, the person you want to reach is the doctor, yes. the doctor who writes the prescription. And that, I think, was quite a pernicious idea because there's a lot of deception and trickery that goes into this kind of marketing and advertising aimed at doctors. And he starts doing that early on. He does it for Valium and he makes huge amounts of money. I mean, he, he made hundreds of millions of dollars over the course of his career. Um, uh, he, he really designed, he was the architect of the marketing drive for Valium, which at the time was the best-selling drug in the history of big pharma. Um, and Arthur ends up dying in 1987. But when you see the rollout of OxyContin in the 1990s, so many of the, the, the dynamics that you see are these, these aspects that, that he actually pioneered decades earlier. Yes. Now, a big feature of all of this is the people who are addicted, becoming addicted. They were, many of them, poor. Um, many of them uh, would start perhaps with this drug and progress, as you point out, to heroin. Um, one of the ways of getting your hit quicker that you draw attention to is uh, in uh, this OxyContin drug, it's a slow-acting drug, uh, the content meaning uh, continuing. So you take it, you take the pill, uh, and the hit is very, very slow. But these young kids, um, many of them from deprived areas, but not all, they were getting the drug. They knew now how it worked, so they ripped the coating off each pill and they uh, took it raw, and you got the hit quicker. That's right, and it wasn't, you know, it's funny, it, it wasn't a, a huge mystery how to do this because because the, each bottle of the pills came with a warning that said, yes, you this point is that a slow-release drug, you know, <laughs> whatever you do, don't grind it up because then you'll get a mammoth hit of opioids. Um, <laughs> yep. So, so you know, uh, when 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 people started to abuse the drug, uh, it didn't take much of a roadmap um, to figure out how to do it. Now, now the question of uh, again, fascinating that you raise it. You point out that pain patients, people in se severe or chronic pain, went doctor shopping, uh, and they sought appointments with physicians who were known. Uh, to be a soft touch, or physicians, indeed, uh, doctors, general practitioners, who were aggressively prescribing this pill. Yeah, I mean, you, you really had a, a series of, of connected problems. So the drug is introduced in 1996, and because that marketing push was so successful, and because doctors really across the United States, and then in other countries as well, start prescribing the drug so widely the whole country is kind of a wash in OxyContin all of a sudden. And there are a couple of things that happen. I mean, one is that people who were abusing drugs anyway, maybe abused other prescription pills, you know, maybe heroin, maybe whatever drugs they could get their hands on, they become aware that there is this kind of heroin substitute in pill form that gives you this very clean high that uh, doctors are, are uh, effectively handing out for pain patients. Um, and so you get a black market that develops where it's either it's a legitimate pain patient who gets too many pills and they start selling the pills on the side, or it's people who pretend to be pain patients yes. and they get prescriptions, or it's dodgy docs who 
who are basically criminals running a criminal operation where they're getting paid for the prescriptions that they're writing and they write them left and right. There's another issue too, though, which is that there are people who aren't doing any of that stuff, but who genuinely um, have pain issues. You know, they have surgery or they have um, fibromyalgia or arthritis, whatever the issue is. They get prescribed the drug. They take it the way you're supposed to take it, but they find that they too are getting addicted. So some of this is about abuse, but some of it is about addiction. And it's an important distinction to make because the, the yeah. Sackler family, even up to this day, claims that if, you've, if you're a pain patient and you get the pill from your doctor and you take it as directed, it's vanishingly rare for you to become addicted. Now, that's not, that's not true. There's huge amounts of evidence to the contrary. Um, but that's a line that they still use. Yeah. Now, you uh, draw attention to February 2000 when a federal prosecutor in Maine uh, a guy called Jay McCloskey, he sent a letter to thousands of doctors across the state warning them about the dangers of this particular drug, OxyContin. Uh, the question of regulation in the United States, uh, the question of the legality of all of this, culpability, where does that happen if it happens at all? Um, and in terms of prosecution or shame, the philanthropy um, must have helped greatly. I mean, who'd want to punish someone who went and lived in the Hamptons in the summer, in the Caribbean in the winter, uh, and uh, in the Swiss Alps at other times, and who was um, a modern-day Medici? I think that's exactly right. I, I, I think that the, um, you know, as the, the U.S. is pretty notorious for its war on drugs, um, if you're a person of color, if you're uh, out there on a street corner selling illegal yes. drugs, um, this the, the, this country will throw the book at you uh, so hard you won't know what hit you, um, and you'll end up often with a, a really draconian prison sentence. If you are a billionaire um, who mixes with the right people, is known for philanthropy, surrounds yourself with high-end lawyers and spin doctors... Um, in the case of the Sacklers in Purdue, you know, one of the things they did famously was they hired uh, former politicians, former law enforcement people. You mentioned that guy, um, uh, McCloskey, who wrote the, the original letter yes. warning doctors. He subsequently went and worked for the company. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they, they yeah. did this all the time. They hired Rudy Giuliani at, right after yes. he was mayor of New York. They hired Mary Jo White, who was the, you know, the, uh, the chairwoman of the SEC under Barack Obama. Um, they surround themselves by these people who kind of insulate them. And when, as has happened twice now, the federal government uh, investigates the company and, in fact, the family and wants to bring charges and bring cases, what happens is basically they get their fixers to go over the heads of the prosecutors bringing the cases and go to the political leadership in, you know, in, in the Justice yes, Department, the White House, and, and say, hey, listen, let's make this go away. You know, these are good people. Um, uh, let's not subject them to, to the indignity of, um, of, you know, any real consequences. So, it, you know, sadly, I think this is a story in which the, the bad guy was always going to get away with it in the end. I think that's an interesting story about the Sacklers and how they've played the system. But to me, it is also an indictment of the, of the American system, um, of justice and the American yes. economy and the manner in which, uh, some of these folks just become uh, too, you know, too big to jail, effectively. Yeah, just a final question, Patrick. We're very grateful to you for 
taking the time to talk to us. Um, where is OxyContin now? And can I get some? <laughs> yeah, it's um, <laughs> it's absolutely still, it's absolutely still for sale. Um, so there yeah, has been yeah. no denouement. Well, I mean, the, the 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 drug is still available, and I should say, I don't, you know, I th- I think it it should be my my quarrel is not with the fact that the drug is is available. I think um, it has helped and continues to help many people. For me, it's all about the marketing. If you have a product that has certain benefits but certain risks, you should tell the truth about what the risks are. Yes. And if you lie about those risks um, in, a, in a systematic way that has really devastating consequences, you should, you should pay the price. Um, but no, OxyContin, is, uh, it's still out there uh, at, at, at the pharmacy. So you'll, you'll, have to see your, you'll have to see your doctor about okay. that. I, my, my one piece of uh, advice to you, not as a medical expert, but somebody who spent the last couple of years working on this, is if, you, if you're going to have a plan to, to go on the drug, I would, I would think very hard about a plan to get off. Okay. Um, uh, we're very grateful to you, Patrick. Patrick Radden Keefe is a brilliant journalist. The book is actually quite brilliant. It's like a thriller. It has human interest. And of course, it has a terrible poignancy when you look at the victims. It's published by Macmillan. Uh, and I would strongly recommend it. Uh, you, it's the kind of book you can read in a sitting or two. Uh, thanks very much, Patrick, for joining us. Thanks to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Hey, hey, it's Kip Bodner, CMO of HubSpot. Join me and my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO over at Zapier, on Marketing Against a Grain. We're not the typical regurgitated Twitter threads. These are takes from us, marketing leaders about what we're doing and what we're learning from our peers and what's working in the market and how you can apply them to your business. Everything you need to grow a modern business and have a strategy that is fit for growth in today's changing economy. Listen to our podcast, Marketing Against the Grain, wherever you get your podcasts. Meet 2024's most anticipated robot vacuum, Eufy X10 Pro Omni. With powerful 8,000 PA suction and MopMaster's dual mop pads, it keeps your floor sparkling clean. It's the winner of five Best of CES awards, and Digital Trends says it boasts almost all the same features as robot vacuums that cost twice as much. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.